There. I want us to return to Genesis chapter 24. Last week we began a series uh, on dating called Where is God on Friday Night? And if you're here with us for the first time, you're probably going, that's weird. Why are we talking about dating? Well, same reason why a lot of singles may go, that's weird. Why are we talking about marriage? Because the Word of God is relevant and it speaks to every situation and season of our lives. And so I want us to do that, especially in the Bay. I shared with you last week, if you just read statistics, um, this is the place in America to live if you are an employed, employed employed single adult male uh, and female as well. In fact, San Jose, because it has the highest ratio of single adult working men to single adult women, uh, San Jose has affectionately been referred to as Man Jose. Man Jose. I was shocked to hear that. Uh, but So we've got to figure out, as we just try to get our arms around, what does it look like to reach the bay for the glory of Christ, to love people from every walk of life? Uh, you just look at the statistics, what that pretty much means is we better have a word in season for everybody, but specifically for those who are single. A part of what that means, uh, here I am, Corey and I were married, and uh, we've got a 16-year-old, 14-year-old, 12-year-old in our house, which means we have three single boys in our house. And a part of, part of their spiritual formation, we've got to speak to them about, the word, about what the Word says about this huge area of their life coming up called dating. So to help us with that, I want us to go to the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. I'm not going to uh, read the whole thing to you again. Sky did that last week. I need to buy her a Starbucks gift card or something. She read 60-something verses. Uh, I'm not going to do that. But last week, we gave four dating principles right here out of the Word of God. There's about 12 to 15 of them uh, found in Genesis chapter 24. I'm going to give you four more this week. If you missed the first four, you can always go online, uh, go uh, to our app and keep up with us that way. Pick me up. In verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels, uh, underline that phrase, ten of his master's camels, it's pretty important, we'll talk about that in just a few moments, and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, I love it, uh, he, he, he just prays. Before he even finds the one, he prays. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. I love this, verse 14, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. But this I shall know that you, uh, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive. In Hebrew, that means she was fine. In Commodore, she was a 36, um, uh, in appearance, a brick house, a maiden. Uh, if you don't know what that means, the chocolate person on your row will tell you, whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Amen. 
I'll never forget the night Corey broke up with me. Oh, I heard all over there. I'm just going to turn in my man card. She, she broke up with me. We had a marathon conversation. We were about six weeks in, and uh, I'll never forget that night. We were on the phone from 11 o'clock at night till 6 o'clock in the morning on the phone, on the phone. Um, some of y'all may not, may not know about this, brother, but in the 80s and 90s, there was a, an R&B crooner by the name of Keith Sweat. Keith Sweat was known for his whining, begging. Well, that night I got my Keith Sweat on. I was whining and begging, and girlfriend wasn't having it. She had just gotten saved, and I was her first relationship post getting saved. And she said, you're a pastor. This is a bit too much for me. In seven hours, I got my Keith Sweat on to no avail. Get off the phone at 6 p.m. at 6 a.m. and uh, ha- I was in grad school at the time. Had a class. Uh, it's called biblical counseling class. Uh, there, um, Amen. Um, in the providence of God, uh, 8 a.m. class. So get a phone with Corey. 6 a.m. This is kind of uh, in the days before you emailed uh, your assignments into your professor. I had to hand in a paper, and I should have sat in class. Didn't just drove to class, dropped the paper off, came back home. I'm turning in my man card here, um, and I put on a chick flick. I ain't going to tell you which one. That ain't your business. Don't ask me which one. But I watched this chick flick for about four straight times, and I was hurt, y'all. I, I was hurt. Later on that evening, don't judge me, I, I had to, to go to church where I was working, and there was an event happening that evening, and they wanted me to give the altar call. And... Um, um, right before altar call, I saw a young lady, um, don't judge me, total rebound situation, uh, don't judge me, and um, asked her for a phone number, and uh, we went out that night, and um, don't judge me. But three days later, three days later, uh, this girl, this, this, this new girl I was hanging out with, um, she paged me. I know I just lost some of y'all. Um, let me see if I can say it another way. She hit me on the hip. No, still not, still not registering. Um, back in the day before cell phones were prevalent, we, we had pagers. Anybody have, anybody have any pagers? pagers? Um, and, um, but I had a smooth one. See, I, I, most pagers, just the number showed up. Mine, you could actually call a 1-800 number, give them the message, and it would come across. It would scroll across the screen. And uh, three days later, three days, I, three days after meeting this girl, she pages me, I love you. Now, now wait a minute, wait a minute, y'all act like that's a surprise. I was a smooth operator back in the day. <laughs> smooth, smooth. Uh, but yeah, that was a little weird. It was a little, little strange. Three days in, this new girl, you know, telling me she loves me. Now, at the same time, this one here who broke up with me, is calling me to tell me what the Lord is doing in her life. Now, y'all don't judge me, but if you break up with me, I really don't care what the Lord's doing in your life. I'm just going to put it out there. I, I, don't, I don't care. You know, tell that to somebody else. Um, but the problem is, I'm hanging out with the new girl, and uh, 
This one here is calling me, talking about how she done discovered what her spiritual gift is and all this other stuff, coming out of Bible study and the stuff she's, she's, she's learning. But praise God, her name is Corey. My wife's name is Corey. So when I'm with the new girl and the new girl asks me, who's that on the phone? I ain't lying. It's Corey. Now, if she wants to think that's a dude, that's between her and God. I ain't being deceitful, but that's just, you know. Ain't nobody told you it wasn't a girl. You asked, I just told you the name. So, you know, I'm telling, you know, Corey, my friend, and um, so I'm hanging out with this girl about maybe two weeks into it. Me and this new girl are hanging out, and... um, She's she's following me. I have to go to an event in L.A. We were in Paramount. She's following me, and she turns a corner a little bit too fast, and she gets a flat tire. So she gets a flat tire. I've got to be at this event. I make sure she's okay. We go to Jiffy Lube or wherever it was. She gets squared away. But then she says to me, two weeks in, she says, the new girl says, you know, I'm a little tired. Do you mind if I just crash at your place? And that's just weird to me. But I'm a smooth brother, so, you know... Um, Okay, so I let her into my apartment, and going about the, my, the, the day's affairs, the next thing I know, the new girl calls me from my apartment and says, you liar, I thought Corey was just your friend. I'm going, what happened? Well, now, now I'm going, well, maybe Corey called the house, she picked up the phone, they got into a fight. Now, that's not what happened. What, what, what this new girl ended up confessing was, while at my apartment, She read all of my journals from cover to cover. Ever have a moment in dating in which you go, how did I get here? What, what, what just happened? Now, if my wife were up here, my my wife refers to that girl as cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. First, her as cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But these are kind of the trials and tribulations of dating. Oh, by the way, postscript to that story. Um, when my wife saw me hanging out with the new girl, the, she came to her senses and <laughs> came crawling back to Big Daddy. Um, and I, I graciously received her, received her back. Is, is that how you remember it, honey? That's, that's a, no, she don't remember it that way. I'm, let me stop, because I'm on the sofa tonight. Um, but there's a lot of pitfalls in dating. There's, 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 there's a lot of stuff that if, we're, if we all tell the truth, if we've ever gone down the dating road, see, there's, there's some pitfalls and there's, there's some things that, that we learn by experience. And I'm here to tell you, it's, it's, it, it, you don't have to learn everything in life by experience. My, 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 my father used to always tell me, Experience isn't always the best teacher, but it is the only school a fool will attend. That's tweetable. I'll give that to you again. I'll give that to you again. My father, my father used to always say, experience isn't always the best teacher, but it is the only school a fool will attend. Some people, it just ain't good enough to tell them the stove is hot. Some people, you have to learn the hard way. This series is designed 
to try to give you some tools to equip you to try to discern who you should allow to steward your heart. This, this, this series is, is designed, whether or not you're a single person or you, you're, you're, you're a married person just trying to impart wisdom into your kids. This series is designed by, by looking at the courtship between Isaac and Rebecca. And there's about 12 to 15 principles we're going to walk through over the weeks together that's designed to equip you so you don't have to touch the stove to know it's hot. But you can just see on sight and you have the ability to discern some things. I want to give you four more principles today embedded in our text. And, and, and one of the things that we have to understand is that strictly speaking, our text, if we're going to really split hairs, does not so much deal with dating as much as it deals with courtship. And there's a difference. Uh, up until about the late 19th century, um, the, 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 the way that things went down in our country between a man and a woman, it always took place in this, in this relational paradigm called courtship. Back then, most houses has, had what's called a parlor. And when a woman came of age back then, it was around the age of 16, her parents deemed her mature enough to, to entertain a group of, of men called suitors. And these men would come at different times. They would sit in the parlor, never one-on-one -on -one with the girl, but oftentimes with the girl and her mama, oftentimes with uh, not just the mama, but, but, but many times even the dad would be a part of it. And these parents, watch it now, would give parental and communal input as it relates to helping their daughter discern who she should marry. They would interview them and they would then whittle it down to, to, to the best candidate. At that point, they would then give permission on occasion for the daughter to go out one-on-one -on -one with this individual. Sounds like a season of The Bachelorette. But this is what you had here. Now things have incredibly changed and don't have time to get into the history of it. But as we come to our text, what we see in our text isn't so much dating, the difference between dating and courtship. Courtship was always communal. It always involved more voices than just the given couple. Dating involves kind of a, more of an autonomous structure, just the man and the woman, the boy and the girl, and it tends to be less communal. Now you might be going, well, pastor, what are you saying here? Are you saying, um, in the words of the popular Christian book that came out several years ago, that we should kiss dating goodbye? No, I'm not saying that. Instead, what I want you to see here in our text, that when we come to our text, the, the, the stars of the text are, are Isaac and Rebecca, but please note that they have one heck of a supporting cast. Look with me on the screen who all is involved in their courtship. There's Abraham, who happens to be Isaac's dad. There's Abraham's servant. We believe his name is Eleazar. Uh, he's the head of Abraham's house. That's the one that Abraham sends out to, to find the woman who would end up being Isaac's wife. There is Laban, who happens to be Rebekah's uh, brother. There's Bethuel, who happens to be Rebekah's father. Rebekah's mother is in the mix. And there is Rebekah's maidens. Principle number one, rather I should say number five, we gave four principles last week, 
And what I think is biblical dating is fifth principle, first principle today. I just think it is wisdom to always involve others. Always involve others. Why? Because a lot of times when people date, they catch a disease. And it's called falling in love. Falling in love has been known to disable discernment. It has been known to impair eyesight. It has been known to obstruct wisdom. There's a wonderful book called uh, Boundaries in Dating. In fact, I read an excerpt to you from last week. It's, um, there's one book I could commend to you as a supplement to this series. It's this book by uh, Dr. Uh, Henry Cloud and John Townsend. Wonderful book. Uh, these um, uh, doctors, uh, these psychologists are coming from a biblical perspective. But look at what they say. They say, being in love in the beginning of a relationship is an illness. It's treatable, but it is an illness nevertheless. The illness is the inability to see reality. For the very state of being in love is a state of idealization, where the other person is not really viewed through the eyes of reality. He or she is mostly seen through the eyes of someone's own wishes or fantasies that the other person is able to symbolize. So it's this, it's an illness. Have you ever wondered, many of you know people like this, um, where maybe you've got a girlfriend who, when she's not in a relationship with someone, she's got a PhD as it relates to other folks' relationships. She can spot that thing, she can smell it out, she can tell you, she can diagnose it, she can just give you wisdom, and it's insightful, and it's brilliant. She's got a PhD in other folks' relationships, but Lord have mercy, when she gets in one herself, she's a kindergartner. Because you need to understand being in love has to do with our emotions. And I want you to get this. Our emotions tend to be the shallowest part of who we are, but at the same time, the strongest part of who we are. Oh, I've been there. I was actually engaged a couple years before. Corey, praise God, that did not work out Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. But have you ever just had a praise break for the breakups in your life? I am so glad that didn't work out. But, 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 but here's what tripped me out. I remember I was heartbroken. It didn't work out. Told my parents. They're sitting in their bedroom watching TV. Heartbroken. Mom, Dad, we just broke up. They turned away from the TV and, and they said, just as cold and callous. Oh, we knew she wasn't the one. <laughs> but here's the deal. The, the, the issue on the table is not why didn't they say anything. They were trying to tell me. But the issue was I wasn't ready to hear it. I wasn't ready to receive it. So what we've got to have is, I, I want you to just look at what the Bible says. This is just wisdom. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. 
What you have to have as you are progressing in dating, as this thing's becoming more and more safe. Listen, listen. When you buy a house, here's what you do. You find and include other people like inspectors who give you a detailed inspection report, who look at this thing from top to bottom. When you buy a car, you get a Carfax report. You want a history on that bad boy? If it's been in any accidents, you want to know what the accidents were? So it's interesting. We'll do that for a house. We'll do that for a car. But when it comes to the most significant relationship outside of God you'll ever have, you want to do that alone and independent and you want to trust your own senses? If anyone needs a Carfax report, it's Tyrone. It's Shaquita. We're multi-ethnic. Heidi. So I want you to understand that you've got to have wisdom. And here's what you want. Jump ahead to verse 60. Here's what you want. Here's what you want. Uh, Actually, look at verse 58. So Rebecca's brother, Rebecca's family, done sniffed these people out. And they called Rebecca, verse 58, and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I'll go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. Here it is. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. That's what you want. You want mom and daddy to bless it. You want, you want the people in your growth group to bless it. You don't want anybody showing up at your, at your wedding going, ooh, I hope this works. You want a sense of blessing. Let me draw a parenthesis here. Um, this doesn't mean um, this doesn't work out 100% of the time. So there are plenty of times in which there are people who may not sign off on it, but those people, they're not God. They may not discern it. Such as has happened that me and my mother-in-law got off to a rough start. A rough, rough start, and it was really my fault. Um, first time I, well, second time I met her was over her house for Thanksgiving. Um, not to throw her under the bus, I just didn't enjoy her cooking. And I'll leave it at that. I didn't know you could do that to a turkey. I'll just leave it at that. So I endured through it, you know, said an extra grace over it, made it through it. But when the next day she tried to serve that for leftovers... Something in my spirit said, if it wasn't good the first time, it ain't going to be good the second time. And so I decided I shouldn't have done it. I decided to skip uh, the leftovers and go to Carl's Jr. She got offended, as right she should. Two weeks later, I called her and asked her for permission. Shouldn't have asked for permission. Should have asked for blessing, but asked for permission to marry her daughter. Her words to me was, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. She never got back to me. I went ahead and did it anyways. That didn't make it better, only made it worse. But here's what I want you to see. She didn't give permission. She didn't give blessing. But she didn't discern it right either. So you got to be careful that the ones you're asking to sign off on are really walking with God. Now, here's the deal. If several of them aren't blessing it, you need to be able to at least take a time out 
and say, maybe God is saying something here because outside of God's word, one of the primary ways he speaks to us is through other spirit-filled believers. And you need blessing. That's wisdom. Second principle is not only involve others, but secondly, we need to keep God at the center. Keep God at the center. If you were to read through uh, the whole of Genesis 24, and every time you saw a name for deity, like Lord or God, you were to simply write that down, what you'll discover is, at the end of Genesis chapter 24, 25 times the name Lord or God is mentioned. God is a part of this process from beginning to end. Abraham kicks it off by saying, I need you to swear by the Lord. We see Eleazar, the servant, going and praying to the Lord. Give me wisdom and discernment. Here's what I'm asking you for. When we meet Rebecca and we get to Rebecca's house, we see that our family is worshiping the Lord. They're blessing her in the name of the Lord. When we meet Isaac, what is he doing? He's in the field worshiping. He's meditating. The, the implication here is he is worshiping the Lord. So here's what I want you to see. From beginning to the end, from the Ruta to the Tuta, the Alpha and Omega, everything in between, God is in the middle of it all. He's in the middle. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, I want to make an astounding statement. And I don't use this as hyperbole, but I really want you to get this in your spirit. I want you to just roll this statement over your mind. I, I, I really believe that at, at the deepest levels, it is Christians who are poised more than every, any other group of people to have the deepest, most intimate relationships. It is Christians who should be having the best and most fruitful friendships, dating relationships, and marriages. Why? Because at the deepest places of who we are, and I'm just talking about all of us as human beings, regardless of our faith tradition, at the deepest places of who we are, the deepest places of who we are is not emotional, it's not intellectual, it's spiritual. It was Blaise Pascal, I shared with you last week, who said this wonderful 17th century mathematician and philosopher who says that all of our, whole, all of our hearts have a God-sized hole that only God can fill. Teslas can't fill it, homes can't fill it, no amount of money can fill it, it is only God who can fulfill it. Now watch this. When God is at the center of Brian's life, so when I meet Corey in 1998, I'm living the spirit-filled life. God is at the center of my life. My wife has just got saved. God is at the center of her life. God is at the center of both of our lives. Now what happens is you've got two people who are deeply satisfied in God. And now these two people who are living lives with God at the center, now what happens, we now come together and we bring God to the center of our relationship. But here's the problem. The problem is, if you look at the statistics, the divorce rate is the same in the church as it is outside the church. And I see this so many times in Christians in dating. What happens now is, in dating, over time, I now exchange God for the other person. God now no longer becomes the center, but now Johnny becomes the center. Sheila becomes the center. And when that happens... Now I'm, for, I'm headed towards a trajectory of unhealth. Now let's see if this is you. Let's take this test. Is God at the center test? See if you've made these statements. Look at the screen. I can't live without you. I can't make it without you. I'm not sure I want to live without you. I'll never overcome this without you. With your help, I can become a better person. As if they're the Holy Spirit. Before you came along, I was lost. So now they're your savior. I need you. I'm incomplete without you. Hear me. 
These are wonderful things to put on a Hallmark card, but they're awful things to say about another person. You can live without them. I know it seems unfathomable, but you can live without them. You don't need anyone outside of God to complete you. In fact, if you've got Christ in your life, you're already complete. You're already whole. You've got all the man you need if Christ is in the center of your life. Now, you may be going, uh, Pastor, that's me. You've called my card. I've, I've made these statements. I've said that, and pretty much here's what we're saying about you. If you've made that statement, that means you're, you're living in idolatry. I hate to say that. And you're living in codependency, which means you're living in unhealth. So what do you do? Same thing you do when an athlete gets injured. When an athlete gets injured, one of the first things they can, one of the worst things they can do is to stay in the game. If they stay in the game, that injury gets worse. And not only does it get worse for them, it actually brings the team down. So what they need to do is they need to come out of the game for a season. For a season, have their, have their injuries addressed, go to rehab, get nursed back into health, and then re-engage the game. I'm going to say something, maybe singles you don't like, but if you're going, man, I'm just, God's just speaking to me. There's just some unhealth. Well, one of the healthiest decisions you can ever make is to get out of the game for a period of time, six months to a year. Say, you know what? I've got my priorities out of order. There needs to be a shift. I need to date God for a prolonged season of time and make sure that I've got first things first in my life. Andy Stanley actually suggests, he's a pastor in, um, in, in North Atlanta, uh, he actually suggests that you go a whole year without this. Now, some of y'all going, uh, I'm not going to his church because I can't do a whole year. Look, if you balk at this, maybe we've just touched an idol in your life. If you can't go a season without dating, then maybe you have elevated dating to the position of deity. See, here's the rule of life. The rule of life is healthy people tend to attract healthy people. Unhealthy people tend to attract unhealthy people. So one of the best things you can do for your dating future is to reposition yourself for health. Now, I want to jump ahead in the story and get to principle number three. Now, y'all going to think I'm unbiblical, but it's in the text. Principle number three is simply what I call the principle of physical attraction. Physical attraction. Physical attraction. Look at what the text says. So here is the servant. He prays to God. I'll come back to that in just a few moments. Verse 15, it says, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's mother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman, listen, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. Okay. So let me just, let me just uh, say a couple of things. I've been here for a year, and I don't think I've said this in general. I love having babies in the room. Absolutely love them. But I want us to be careful that babies don't distract from the hearing of the word of God. All right? So I just want us to be careful with that, and you can just take that word as you need it. We've got a wonderful chapel where you can still catch up with the sermon and hear it that way. Okay, that's a brief pastoral ex exhortation. So here's what I want you to understand here. Comes to the text. He's just prayed. Here's what he's prayed. Uh, God, I want a woman of character. Now watch this. At the end of his prayer, notice there's Rebecca, and he notices, watch this now, he doesn't notice her godliness. 
He doesn't notice her character. He's just seen her. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell you now, I'm going to get some emails. I'm going to get some emails on this. Email me at rshell at alcf.net. Watch it. I love it. The text says that Rebecca was attractive. She was fine. She was all that. And I love it. Text says that the servant ran to her. The physical is not the most important thing. It's not. But stop lying. (laughs) Tell the truth and shame the devil. It matters. The physical is a door. It's like you're looking for a house. And if that house is broke down and raggedy on the outside, you ain't going inside. So the physical is not the most important thing, but it is a door that allow a person to say, I, I want to explore more here. It matters. Now I want to show you, this is not just in Genesis chapter 24. I want you to look at the Song of Solomon. I've got it for you on the screen. If you read the Song of Solomon, it is a sensual book. It is a book in which a husband and a wife are talking back and forth. In this passage, we see Solomon, the man, describing his wife. And I want you to notice the physicality of his descriptions. Don't get an attitude with me. Get an attitude with the word of God. Listen to what he says. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. I don't think that still works now. (laughs) Leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Boy, it sounds good. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes. I I guess that's good. (laughs) That have come up from the washing. Baby girl brushed her teeth. All of which bear twins. I love this one. And not one among them has lost its young. Girl, you got all your teeth. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David. I don't don't think that'll work at the club. Um, Behold, in rows of stone on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Now, I'm just reading the Bible. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that gaze among the lilies until, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. It's the Bible. It's the Bible. Is there a place for the physical? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Ladies, you need to understand. Uh, it's like I tell my boys as I'm trying to help them discern who their wife needs to be. She doesn't need to be the most beautiful woman in the world. But to you, she does. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. She doesn't need to be the most beautiful woman in the world. 
but to you she does. Um, you don't wake up next to character. I know that. I know you ain't never heard a pastor say that before. There's times I wake up in the middle of the night and I watch my wife sleep with her fine self. And I feel like I've robbed the bank. I just can't believe she said yes. Unbelievable baby girl is still fine. Today, 18 years later, as the day when I first met her, and I, I am... I'm just so grateful. I got me a Proverbs 31 woman in fine packaging. I absolutely love it. Ladies, you need to understand that the way men are wired, we're physical. We just really are. We are visual, sight-oriented people. And men, let me help you out, especially married men. Don't make the mistake I made early on in marriage. I got married saying, me and my wife are going to be accountability partners. And I'm going to share with her all of my struggles. I remember going away on a road trip one time, coming home from that road trip. I was in California. I think we were living uh, back east somewhere, uh, coming home and uh, sweetheart, I just got to tell you, I just, I saw this woman and man, I just struggled. What you mean you struggle? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> Women just don't understand how we can see. And so let me just, at that moment, I just said, you know what? I'm going to get accountability somewhere else. Um, We're one, but you can't handle that. Okay. So women, what I need you to understand is the way men are wired, we are physical in nature. So one of the things that my inbox is going to be filled. One of the things I need you to see is what you use to catch us with. If you could make an effort. I'm serious. I got to say that another way. And ain't no, ain't no men amening me on this. Uh, y- y'all know what I'm trying to say. But that's a two-way street. That's a, that's a two-way street. And, and so I just, I just, this is not unspiritual talk. It is not unspiritual talk. Some men feel hoodwinked because when you were dating, you was all up in the mirror at the gym all the time, taking care of yourself. Then you caught them. And you just let it go. Here's what I want you to understand. The physical matters to men. It's not the most important thing. And y'all men just going to leave me out here by myself. Some of y'all are like, I can't help you, dog. Can't. I'll, I'll come up after service. After service when she's, you know, counting the money. I'll come help you. But men, here's what you need to understand about women. Shawnee Feldman says in her wonderful book, For Men Only, she says, you need to understand that women think about beauty as often as men think about sex. One brother said, mm, that much? <laughs> Women need to feel beautiful. They need to feel beautiful. Now, let me just say this, and I'll, I'll just move on. Physical attraction is important, but this might shock you. I've oftentimes had engaged couples sit in my office, and they just, they'll say something to the effect of, man, we're just really struggling physically with one another. And I shock them when I say, good. Good. I would be more concerned if you're going, not a struggle. Not a struggle. Why? God has put in you certain desires. Now, here's the deal. We've got to be committed to holiness. 
My wife and I struggled. We really struggled, praise God, when we said I do July 3rd, 1999. It wasn't until that evening after we said I do that we, we knew each other in the biblical way for the first time. But boy, it was a struggle. And we had to put some things in place. I had to tell her, it's 10 o'clock at night. You need to leave my house. I don't want to play Monopoly anymore. I don't play Twister or something else. Use wisdom. As my dad says, don't give the devil a stick to hit you upside the head with. I know I've gone too far. Again, Arshel at ALCF.net. But there is a place for the physical. Now, let's go home on this one. So what do I need to ask for? When I'm trying to discern in the dating relationship whether or not this is a person I need to give serious contemplation for, what do I need to discern here? I want you to look at the servant's prayer. Here's the servant, and he, he prays to the Lord, and here's what he prays. He says, God, uh, I'm going to go to the well, and here's what I'd like. I'd, I'd like for the woman who comes up to me and says, I'll give you water, and I'll also give your ten camels water as well. Let that be the one. Now, this is an astounding request. Scholars tell us that on average, back then, a camel needed 25 gallons to replenish the weight it had lost in a large journey. It needed 25 gallons of water. This brother has 10 camels, 250 gallons. Rebecca has a jar that holds one gallon. Let's say the numbers are off. So let's say it's not 25 gallons. Let's say it's 10 gallons. One gallon jar, 10 gallons, 10 camels. Here comes Rebecca. She says, would you like water? Oh, and I'll also water your camels, which means this. She makes 100 trips back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and 100 times. If there's a short list of things you need to be able to discern as it relates to whether or not this is a person I need to spend my life with, this is probably one of the most important things I'll, I'll tell you in this series. It's the most important thing I can tell you today. Close to the top of the list is they need to be selfless. The number one killer to all relationships is selfishness. The number one killer to every relationship is selfishness. It's not adultery. Adultery is just a face of selfishness. Adultery pretty much says, who cares about God's provision for my own sexual needs? I'm going to go, I'm going to circumvent God, and I'm going to find, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to like who I want to like. I'll lay down with whoever I want to lay down with on my own terms. That's selfishness. See it there? So the number one, the number one reason why people get divorced, it is because they are narcissistic, me-centered people who are just incredibly selfish. Selfishness is the number one killer to all relationships. My wife and I have seen it, and you've seen it too. My wife and I, when we were dating, we would date with this other couple. Individually, they were great, but when they got together, man, they were just nauseating to be around. It was really him. He was a domineering, self-centered individual. She didn't help things because she was passive. She never put her foot back, foot down. She never pushed back. They did everything he wanted to do. If he wanted to eat somewhere, even if she didn't like the kind of food, she passively went, around, went along with it. I mean, he was just domineering and self-centered. She ended up getting married to him. They're still married to this day. My wife and I just visited him not too long ago, and literally his selfishness over the decades has just beaten her down. She's not flourishing. She's not who she is. And let me just say this. If you read Ephesians chapter 5, when the Bible says, Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, one of the things embedded in that passage is the role of the husband is to put his wife in a position to where she flourishes. 
How do I do that? Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. The way that I do that is, how do I know Christ loved me? And in a selfless act, he laid down his life for me. What I need to do, see, I can always, I can always tell how a husband is leading based on the countenance of his wife. You need to understand this. Men, we are, we are thermostats. Wives are thermometers. Men set the environment. We set the temperature in the home. Women simply reflect our leadership. So a beat down wife who is not flourishing is oftentimes indicative of a selfish, narcissistic man. Now, now, let's be fair. This goes both ways. I'm just going to go here. One of the most frustrating and sad things to see in life is a henpecked man whose wife has emasculated him. Yeah, men, don't, don't say amen here. <laughs> Women, here's what you need to understand. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says, I talked about it last week, but I came in from the man's side. Today, let me come in from the woman's side. It is a snake who talks to a woman. We, we learned last week that it's the husband who's right next to uh, the woman as she talks to the snake, which means this. She, what she should have done is, when the snake approached her, is she should have stepped behind the leadership of her husband and said, you know what? In my household, we don't talk to snakes. You can talk to my husband. But what she does is she usurps her husband's authority and in a controlling way, she takes the lead. So now here's what happens. God now gives the curse and he says this, woman, from now on, your desire will be for your husband, which means this, women, the gravitational pull of your lives, wives, is you will want to be in control. And I see this a lot. It is manipulative women who emasculate their husbands, who emasculate uh, their man, who are, who are leading them. Uh, these brothers can't even get out to play a round of golf without their wives guilting them, manipulating them. They can't go on an annual boys trip out of town somewhere without getting a whole bunch of grief. Now, hear me, hear me, hear me. Are there times in which you go, yeah, yeah, I don't need to play golf right now, or this isn't the season to do that, or this isn't a good time for me to go on the trip. I got to attend to some matters at home. Absolutely. But come on, brothers. She ain't supposed to be leading. You ain't supposed to be dictating. But there are some times in which you need to go, sweetheart, I've been loving you as Christ loved the church. I need a little bit of space here. Arshel at ALCF.net. <laughs> So I want you to see the selfishness goes both ways. It goes both ways. Women are not to control their man. But husbands, I think we need to come down harder on you because the woman tends to reflect your leadership. Hear me, in a couple of weeks, I'm putting my wife on a plane to New York City. She's going to hang out with her girlfriends. Uh, I told her, don't even tell me what you spent on a credit card. I trust you by faith. That card's going to come back smoking right? But here's the deal. Here's the deal. I'm trying to lead my wife and give her space um, because I love her, but it's the law of sowing and reaping. 
When I'm positioning my wife and I'm, 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 I'm releasing her to do things that God's put on her heart, it's amazing how that comes back to you. It's amazing how that comes back to you. All right. The Bible says this, Philippians chapter 2, as we prepare to close. Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, here's the problem. You're dating, and here's what you're picking up on. I'm selfless, but it seems like he's selfish. How do I really know? Let me give you four indicator lights to help you to determine whether or not the one you're with is selfish. Number one, are they pressuring you for sex? Pressuring you for sex outside of marriage? Listen to me. Lust takes. Love gives. In fact, the Bible says love is patient. Lust is impatient. Here's what I tell my boys. This is real talk. I got a 16-year-old, 14-year-old, 12-year-old. I'm preparing them. I want them to be able to discern whether or not she's a Canaanite. Talked about this last week. I tell them, and it's a hard saying. I said, Quentin, if she will lay down with you and transgress God's laws and not feel any guilt or shame about it, and, and she'll lay down with you before marriage, how can you trust that after you say I do, she will not lay down with somebody else? It's a two-way street. If he won't be patient, and he will flippantly transgress God's laws with you before you get married, what gives you any confidence that he'll know how to all of a sudden, now that he's got a ring, all of a sudden now he knows how to control himself. It's quiet in here. It's quiet in here. Listen, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. The only thing weddings change are bank accounts. Okay? So here's why my wife trusts me. I flew over 200,000 miles last year. My wife trusts me. Why? Because when we were courting, I exercised self-control over my body. And that sent a profound message to her. That you're just not into me for the parts of my body. But you love Jesus, are filled with the Holy Spirit... One of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. And if you can control yourself with me before you say I do, now I've got confidence that you can control yourself with me after I say I do. This is wisdom. The best predictor of future behavior is past and present behavior. Have wisdom. Second thing, rarely, if ever, offers to pay for dates. Brothers, let me say this, and we're going to talk about it next week. If you don't have the money to buy an In-N-Out burger and some French fries, you ain't ready to consider getting married. If you ask her out, the assumption is you pay. This, now, this sounds simple, 
But I'm telling you, this new school generation, they don't have these old school sensibilities. And brothers, here's the deal. When the check comes, grab it immediately. That's sexy. It'll just send a message, right? So, but if the person never offers to pay, selfishness. Third, makes you feel bad for wanting to have a separate life from him or her. Selfishness. Fourth, most of what you do together is what they want to do. Never really ask you what you want to do. Now, I've said some hard things. I want the band to come. We're ready to close our service. I've said some hard things. And some of you are feeling profoundly convicted. You're feeling profoundly convicted. One of the things I just want to labor before you, I just, look, I, I want to I run the risk of being too authentic with you um, than for you to put me on a pedestal you don't need to put me on. While my wife and I restrain from each other, I brought an unfortunate history. I, I didn't, I made, I made horrible mistakes with women. Horrible mistakes. But here's what I want you to know. God's grace is sufficient. And we don't serve a God of a second chance. I've used mine up a long time ago. We serve a God of another chance and another chance and another chance. And I'm tell telling you, it is Jesus who makes the difference in your relationships. And if you don't get first things first, if Jesus Christ isn't at the center, nothing else works. And so the, way, the reason why I'm now able to at least grow in being selfless grow in, in laying down my rights is because the Jesus that I followed is a selfless man. He died on the cross for our sins. He gave his life for us. And he says to us, the way in which you can be selfless with other people, your motivation for that is because I'm selfless with you. I'm patient with you. I keep morning by morning giving you new opportunities and new chances. I'm not here speaking words of condemnation over you. I am with you every step of the way. And the greatest decision you could ever make, whether or not you're single and you're trying to figure out this whole dating thing, number one decision you could ever make is not what human being could you get in relationship with, but do you have a relationship with God? Because when Christ is in your life, it completely changes the game. I remember my wife said this, and I, I say this, I'm not trying to be self-serving, but I remember I was her first Christian relationship. I'll never forget what she said to me one time. She says, I've never had a man treat me like this. I've never had a man respect me like this. Hear me, I don't take credit for that. It's Jesus. Jesus specializes in changing and transforming people. And so step number one to a healthy relationship, healthy marriage, healthy, healthy dating relationship is, where are you with God? Is Christ at the center of your life? I didn't ask, do you have religion? 
I didn't ask what church you go to. We can talk about church later. Where are you in Jesus? In fact, you, you can have religion. A whole lot of people have religion. They don't have relationship. So it's not, am I sitting in the middle of church? It's, is God sitting in the middle of your heart and life? Is he the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end?